0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a group of lawyers and journalists suing uh, the CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo for spying on them during their visits with Julian Assange. Also going to be giving an update on the ongoing war in Ukraine. Also going to be touching on how uh, imperialist medal in domestic elections here in the U.S. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, who didn't see Liz Cheney's loss coming? You had to know that the Republican who not only defied Trump, but is on the House subcommittee trying to find something to pin on him relating to January 6th was going to face a red wave reckoning. And she did last night, losing her primary by a whopping 30 points to Trump backed candidate Harriet Hagerman. In her concession speech to a very small group of supporters, pretty much all the people who voted for her in Wyoming, Liz Cheney said that Trump is a, quote, very grave threat and risk to our republic, and said that she thinks that defeating him will require a broad and united front of Republicans, Democrats, and independents, and that's what I intend to be a part of. And that's what got her canned probably as much as defying Trump, her willingness to work with Trump's enemies as much as she was willing to defy Trump. And I'm not saying that that's an admirable thing, mind you. I'm merely pointing out the ideological clarity that these unhinged, dangerous, openly fascist and clearly violent people who love Trump have. They don't want to work with Democrats. Democrats. Democrats represent nothing that they stand for or want, and that's pretty much just Trump and whatever he says. And they sure don't want to mess with wishy-washy independents who can't pick a side. No, they are absolutely clear on the you're for us or against us mantra, and they are sticking to that. What the heck is wrong with Democrats then? They have no such ideological loyalty or clarity or even principles lifting up Republicans like Cheney simply because they opposed Trump and ignoring all the big pro-big business, pro-war, anti-environmental protection, anti-choice, anti-equality, anti-people policies that those folks support every other day of the year that makes our lives miserable. The Democrats keep telling us that we must vote for Democrats to defeat the evil Republicans taken over by Trump. But Mama Bear Pelosi's going on talk show circuits telling the same people that she wants a robust Republican party that she's saying have to vote for the Democrats. She just doesn't want Trump and his acolytes. She's fine with the GOP. So how do the Democrats continue to defend voting for them? And how do Democratic voters continue to believe that they're actually voting for the lesser evil when the Democrats not only support basically the same policies as the Republicans, you know, the pro-big business, the pro-war, anti-environmental protection, anti-choice, anti-equality, anti-people policies that the Republicans support – but the Democrats want to work with those Republicans to prop up the facade of a strong republic with two functioning opposition parties representing all interests. But the only interests represented by the system and both parties are the interests of the capitalist dictatorship and imperialism. Signaling a potential presidential run in 2024, Liz Cheney said, quote, I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office, and I mean it, end quote. Well, Cheney can expect support from Democrats if she does run for president, since they've made her a hero for her defiance of Trump and her position on the House Select Committee on January 6th. But that isn't necessarily a good thing, like I said before. Having the support of Democrats doesn't guarantee a win against Trump's GOP. And I do wonder how Democrats will act when the presidential candidates come down to doddering old Joe Biden and the new darling Liz Cheney. That is, if she can win the Republican nomination. And I don't think she can, even with the Democrats' help. And they will help. Like I said, the Democrats have no ideological integrity or loyalty, at least not to us, the people that they're supposed to be representing. No, they're happily spending their money, nearly $44 million on advertising campaigns across five states in Republican primaries, Open Secrets reports, to boost the profile of far-right candidates in California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Maryland. Their strategy... Open Secrets Reports is rooted in the belief that these candidates, many of whom spread unfounded claims that the 2020 election race was stolen from former President Donald Trump, will be easier to defeat in the general election. How'd that work out last time the Democrats tried this pie, Piper business? Oh, that's right. Those emails weren't legitimate because the Russians wrote them on the DNC server, or the Russians hacked them and leak them or whatever it was the Democrats told you happened to make you forget that they were the ones who promoted Donald Trump in the first place because they thought there was no way people would vote for him. These are the same people telling you that Ukraine is winning the proxy war that the U.S., EU, and NATO started against Russia too. They're telling you now that Russia is trying to sabotage a nuclear power plant in Crimea. They're literally saying that Russia is trying to blow up a nuclear power plant because they're losing the war in Ukraine. I don't think 2024 is going to work out like the Democrats and their anti-Trump Republican allies are planning for it, too. Follow Lukman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's Talking Points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By
3: Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Mohamed El-Mazi, a U.K.-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary and Electronic Intifada. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Mohammed, a a group of lawyers and journalists are actually suing the CIA and former CIA director Mike Pompeo for alleging that both Pompeo and the agency spied on them while they were visiting WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange while he was still living in political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. And I was hoping you could help us understand, Mohammed. I mean, what was the character of this uh, surveillance, how deep was it, and uh, 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 you know what evidence do we have, if any, that uh, the agency and Pompeo may have been involved?
2: Okay, so the surveillance was um, uh, total, uh, based on uh, whistleblower testimony and and information that's come out from two people who worked for uh, whistleblowers who worked for UC Global. That's the security firm hired by the Ecuadorian embassy to protect the embassy and protect Julian Assange and others inside the embassy, although it is alleged, uh, according to the whistleblowers, as well as a, an expose that later came out from from uh, uh, via Yahoo News, that um, these people were recruited, or the CEO of UC Global, and therefore UC Global was recruited by the CIA uh to uh basically double deal their clients to in fact spy on julian his lawyers uh anyone else that was coming to visit him in the embassy uh, and others close to him and then feed that information back to the united states and uh, the evidence according to the um whistleblowers when david morales that's the ceo of the security firm returned from an event at las vegas sands which was, uh, I think it was sponsored by, uh, or at least attended by security personnel belonging to uh, the billionaire casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, who'd apparently worked with uh, uh, the CIA before, at least his security personnel. And they had spoken to David Morales. And when David Morales returns from his trip, from this trip, this event at Las Vegas Sands, he says, uh, we're now gonna be working, quote, for the dark side, end quote. And um, and we're now going to be in the big leagues, uh, big leagues, uh, the Premier League, right, reference to the uh, the championship, uh, soccer championships. And um, after that, they start uh, uh, their behavior at the embassy changes, according to the whistleblowers. So the cameras that are are in the embassy get changed to include microphones. And they're also given instructions that if they're asked by any staff or Julian whether or not there's uh, audio recording, they're instructed to tell, say no. Um, at another point, uh, uh, Julian uh, gets suspicious. He starts using a white noise machine when he's having conversations with people. If you have you ever seen those white noise machines? Sometimes psychiatrists' offices have them near the door, right, so that people outside, waiting outside, can't hear the conversations inside, and. Uh, one of the tech people was asked to go and place stickers on the window to say, oh, he's just doing some routine work. And these are specific stickers that are designed uh, to stop the window from vibrating so that a laser mic from across the building across can, can intercept the conversations from indoors. There, uh, When Julian starts having conversations with his lawyer inside the women's bathroom in the embassy – they then go in uh, to install an audio mic inside the embassy. They were they installed them in the fire fire not hydrant. The uh, um, what's it called? Fire extinguisher. Um, so also, and this is in the complaint. Whenever anybody is over a hundred people at least uh, who have come to visit Julian, uh, they're then told by the security, right? This UC Global security, that they have to give up their phones and laptops and what have you. For the purpose of of security, and it turns out, according to what's being alleged, and this is also according to the whistleblowers, that the SIM cards were being photographed, the electronic devices were being taken apart and and pictured, uh, data on laptops, on phones, other electronic devices being copied, when this is happening, passports, other information, and that all of this is being fed back to the CIA. Um, there's also a break-in in, in the law office of Balthazar Garzon, uh, who's a famous Spanish judge. And uh, he was also WikiLeaks sort of international lawyer, right? So he was heading things up outside of the UK. And this break-in happened after uh, 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 the whistleblowers say that they were told that more information was wanted, that there were break-ins, were, were, a robbery was being discussed. So, uh, uh they're told that the CIA was happy or the American friends, quote-unquote, were happy, but they wanted more. So eventually a 24-hour or, or a live feed from the audio-video cameras indoors are being then fed up back to the, to an address in the United States, is believed the CIA, right? So not only are they recording what's going on, but they're feeding it live to the United States. Um, it's also alleged that, according to the whistleblowers, that the lawyers, quote, were priority targets, end quote, right? So they were specifically targeting the lawyers. And in the in the what is being alleged in this lawsuit against the CIA, against Mike Pompeo, and against UC Global, the private security firm that was supposed to be protecting the embassy, but then ended up double dealing, and its CEO, David Morales, they're all being sued, according to this. It's not just lawyer-client privilege that was violated, but obviously medical privilege that was violated and journalistic privilege, right? So while there are no medical doctors who are part of the lawsuit, because there are only four people who are part of the lawsuit, two of them lawyers, two of them investigative journalists – uh, including so it's Charles Glass and David Goetz who are the journalists, and Margaret Ratner uh, Kunstler and Deborah Herbeck. I hope I pronounce her last name correctly. Who are the, you know, uh, she's a media lawyer uh, and uh, Margaret Ratner. Uh, I'm trying to recall. I think she does civil liberties and constitutional law, but she's been practicing law for thirty years. So. You can think about this level of violation. I don't know. Should I also point out the key part of the claim, right? Because this happened outside the United States, right? And the key part of the claim, and this was raised during a press conference, which I attended, uh, I think that was yesterday. The days are merging into each other. Sometimes it's uh, difficult to remember. But um, the Fourth Amendment, according to case law, uh, applies to all U.S. citizens, even anywhere in the world, so the fact that they were outside of the united states doesn't you know doesn't mean that they're not entitled to have their constitutional rights respected by us agencies so the cia is prohibited and this is also stressed in the lawsuit right uh uh for uh, from violating the fourth amendment right uh, prohibition against um unreasonable search and seizures of us citizens regardless of whether they're physically in the us or not and regardless of whether they're doing it directly or by proxy you know by hiring somebody else like uc global from doing it so that's the current state of affairs the evidence a substantial amount of evidence comes from you know the whistleblowers themselves who worked at uc global i mean uh, uh, lots of evidence is also coming out from the criminal prosecution in Spain because David Morales, after a complaint was filed, once these revelations came out, David Morales was arrested, the CEO of UC Global, and he's being criminally prosecuted because uh, unlawful spying on people's uh, uh, you know privileged communications is illegal in Spain. And this is a Spanish-based company, even though majority of the activities in question, although certainly not all, occurred in uh, the United Kingdom.
1: Yeah, Mohammed, this is all happening about two months after the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel approved the US extradition request of uh, uh Assange. And his legal team has submitted two separate appeals to uh the UK courts, but it's it's almost inevitable that Assange could be flown to the US to face espionage act charges. So What does this lawsuit and the potential outcome of the lawsuit uh, have in regard to impact on Assange's case if it has any?
2: Okay. So first, I'd push back slightly about uh, in respect of it being almost inevitable because they have claims that have yet to be addressed, not only in the high court, but all the way at the European Court of Human Rights. So that includes all manner of issues, including the challenging the assurances the U.S. gave, but also the issues relating to the political nature of the offence the uh, violation of due process because of the surveillance the violation of freedom of press etc so the high court has yet to hear these arguments the supreme court hasn't had the opportunity to decide whether they want to hear them and if they do you know what the decision they'd make and the european court of human rights hasn't had an opportunity and as long as we are a member of the council of europe and the human rights act is incorporated in uk law which it is for now at least uh then that is a, a potential appeal So, um, and, you know, the the European court tends to frown upon things such as, you know, violation of attorney-client privilege. So uh, we'll see there as well as like the prohibition against torture, which is uh, what Julian would be subjected to under his conditions and under the conditions that he'd be held in the United States, according to the first judge. She didn't use the term torture, but that the conditions would lead, uh, high likelihood they would lead to his suicide, that they're so oppressive as to lead to suicide. So uh, in terms of how this case might impact, indirectly, it could impact. Because Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen, right? So it's, he can't assert violation of his Fourth Amendment rights while based outside of the U.S. However, should he be extradited and tried in the U.S., then there is the, of course, possibility that especially if this lawsuit gets how much this lawsuit is able to reveal and pull, pull out in the meantime via discovery, uh, he'd certainly raise the, the argument, among others, that he can't have a fair trial in the United States for a number of reasons, one of which is that um, they've poisoned the case. The state has poisoned the case. It's not possible for him to get a fair trial as a result of the fact that his lawyer, client, privilege communications and everything else was spied upon and fed... To the CIA, and the argument that there is this natural firewall uh, somehow between the CIA and the DOJ uh, is 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 an argument that the government would have to prove, according to the lawyers that I uh, interviewed or that I questioned during the press conference, the ones who are bringing the lawsuit. Uh, That the government can't simply say, oh, well, there's a firewall between the CIA and the Department of Justice. You don't have to worry that any lawyer-client violations would have any impact on his case. We should also remember, although it was a different Supreme Court in those days, that Daniel Ellsberg's case, when he was being prosecuted as a whistleblower under the Espionage Act, that case ultimately collapsed. Not because of the evidence uh, uh, in the case, but because it was discovered that the FBI – Directly or indirectly, uh, had had uh, ransacked or broken into his psychiatrist's office in order to steal personal information about him in order to blackmail and smear him with. So, uh, uh, as I say, was it you know a different time period? And there's also a different, sorry, not just a different Supreme Court there, which, uh, but a, a different, yeah, you know, a different era that was during the Vietnam War, and that was a, that was a high court, that was the trial judge ultimately who who dismiss the case with prejudice so um this is important because of what it could end up revealing and and it's also potentially important politically because if this case becomes the bigger of a deal this case becomes the more difficult one could argue or uh, the, that the it It is for the government to continue, the U.S. government to continue its extradition request. Uh, In the alternative, it makes it easier for those who oppose the extradition and trial of Julian Assange to pressure the state, both congressmen and others Uh, uh, to get the department of justice or the biden administration to drop the extradition request because it is a political decision at the end of the day the, the filing of this extradition request right it is you know the obama administration ultimately decided against it despite seeking a means to do it the trump administration changed that policy and decided to go ahead and the biden administration is deciding to continue trump's policy and uh, uh pompeo's policy etc and go ahead so these are political decisions which which even one of the former prosecutors noted that when he was moved right before he moved to private practice towards the end of the trump administration one of the key prosecutors in this case he noted he said uh he wasn't sure that this case would continue under the biden administration thereby making it clear that there is you know obviously a uh, discretion here and there's a political discretion Absolutely. Well, we thank
0: you so much, Muhammad, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having an update about several issues concerning the ongoing war in Ukraine. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by International Affairs and Security Analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Sean, Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary.
0: Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And as the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine grinds on and the reality on the ground begins to pierce the wall of propaganda in the West, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has released a video vowing to target Russian troops at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant uh, who fire on Ukrainian cities and towns, saying in the video, quote, every Russian soldier who either shoots at the station or shoots under the cover of the station, must understand that they are becoming a special target for our intelligence, for our special services, for our army. Now, Mark, I was hoping you could help us understand just what is the reality of what's going on with this nuclear power plant. My understanding is that uh, both Russia and Ukraine are accusing each other of attacking it, and why is it relevant within this conflict?
4: OK, so the uh, Zaporozhia nuclear power plant has been under Russian dur- jurisdiction since early March. Uh, when Russian intervention began, it rolled through the south, the two southern pro- provinces, Kherson and Zaporozhye with very little fighting. A lot of the uh, political uh, figures stood down. Uh, went over to the Russian side uh, immediately. There was very little fighting, and Russia rolled into this plant. This plant is the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, and it's one of the 10 biggest nuclear power plants in the world. It produces some 5,700 megawatt uh, hours a month, um, and it is provides 20% of Ukraine's electricity, so a, a pretty significant amount. Um, since the Russians uh, uh, Took control of the plant The Ukrainian staff is still there They're still working They're still doing their jobs running it uh, Russian has, uh, hasn't has interfered With that um, And the plant is still providing electricity Not only to Russian Controlled Zaporozhia But also to all the areas It previously fed in regime Controlled territory in the rest of Ukraine So that hasn't changed either But um, one month ago, the Kiev regime, uh, Ministry of Defense, and and the government both announced that they had conducted kamikaze drone attacks, and these are probably the same uh, suicide drones, uh, the Switchblades provided by the United States, hit the nuclear attacked Russian forces at the nuclear power plant. Right. No, no talk about Russians firing from there. They, they were there. They attacked them. They admitted it. Now, uh, jump forward. Uh, we're a month later, and there have been several uh, um, multiple attacks on the plants with artillery and multiple launch rocket systems since then. Um, Russia says that it is the Kiev regime continuing the attacks that they began and announced a month ago. The Kiev regime says, no, it's not us attacking the plant. Um, That's what they said at first. First, it was uh, the Russians are in the plant and they're firing out of the plant towards us so that we can't hit back. Um, And also, simultaneously, the Russians are firing at themselves inside the plant to try to blow themselves up to create a nuclear catastrophe to blame Kiev. That is the convoluted logicless story that the Kiev regime concocted. And the Western mainstream media dutifully reported. They simply said, both sides are accusing each other and we can't tell what is happening. And, or, you know, the truth can't be known. Well, I mean, the, the truth can't be known. The shells of, of U.S.-made munitions have been found, uh, you know, all over uh, the town, or Negathar where this um, nuclear power plant is located. Um, and what's more, the Kiev regime is now Accusing that, uh, and this was a, a repeated in the Wall Street Journal in the in in the last twenty four hours, that Kyrgyz officials are saying that Russia is doing this, shelling the plant by by their by their propaganda uh, in order to steal Ukraine's energy, which. Makes no sense whatsoever because Russia already has Ukraine's energy and is still providing it to Ukraine. So none of Kiev's narrative makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, and you might say, well, well, what is the motivation here for the Kiev? First of all, they are desperately afraid that they are losing Western attention and support, both the governments and the media. And this has been widely reported. Um, and they still hope to create some type of international incident um, that draws NATO directly into the conflict. Um, that's why they're willing to do this. We've also seen previously that any areas that fall under Russian jurisdiction, they do not regard the people there as anything but traitors and collaborators anymore. Even they have officially put out a, uh, a statement that any uh, Ukrainian who accepts uh, Russian humanitarian aid just takes food is considered a collaborator and do all punishment uh, you know that they get in justice for that as they term it. Um, And uh, the Kiev regime has conducted a scorched earth policy in other areas before. They have ignited grain fields. They have bombed um, dams, hydroelectric stations, uh, causing flooding and loss of energy. Um, So um, a nuclear scorched earth policy is just one step up. Now, the main reactor containment body is 1.5 meters of steel and concrete, right? It would take a direct tactical nuclear strike to damage that thing. So that that is not the issue. And even the spent fuel uh, containers on the perimeter of the uh, nuclear power plant, they're also reinforced steel and concrete that are specifically designed to protect from high energy impacts, i.e. Explosion, you know, uh, artillery shells and the like, if that's stored properly. But that seems to be where Kiev has targeted uh, when they are striking the plant, the spent fuel facilities, uh, and also uh, the cooling uh, for the plant. Which, um, if the plant is not shut down, could result in a meltdown. Uh, So there, there is that danger there. And if the spent fuel facilities uh, are penetrated, right, it is unlikely, but it could happen. That would create a de facto dirty bomb effect. That's that's what they're aiming for here, basically to create some type of huge international radi- radiation incident that they think would force Russia to end their intervention. And that's the goal Going on here, Russia has the Russian government has termed it nuclear terrorism, and uh, that seems to be likely. They have also targeted a a nearby hydroelectric dam that provides cooling water to the plant, uh, which is is also uh, a a potential problem here. Um, So uh, that's where we're at now. The accounts that the Russian Ministry of Defense uh, gave uh, in the last 24 hours, they are targeting the Kiev regime forces that have been um, conducting the attacks on the plant uh, with artillery, but they are not striking at them from the plant itself. They're striking striking them from uh, either side of the area well outside the radius of the plant.
1: Mark, I, I I don't know. I don't want, I I don't even know how to respond to what you said about the, the, the motivation behind this because, because Zelensky is afraid that the attention is waning in the West on the war in Ukraine, so they have to create something to keep. Ukraine at the center of our attention and to continue to demonize Russia, even at the risk of a nuclear incident. Please tell us that someone, of course, not someone in the United States, because we know that there is no one in the United States talking any sense uh, in this in this conflict Please tell me that there is someone somewhere in in uh, Germany somewhere who is talking some kind of sense or trying to uh talk Zelensky and the Ukrainian government out of this catastrophic uh uh strategy.
4: Yeah, uh, someone is somewhere China. I mean that that's all. I'm, I'm sorry. If you're looking for uh, some type of sanity from anyone in Europe or elsewhere in, in NATO, in the West, best look elsewhere. That's that. that's my only advice. We haven't heard anything sensible coming from from anyone uh, at all. Um, and the logic, uh, you know, is, I guess, sound from the perspective, the Kiev regime at this point is entirely dependent on the West, both for military supplies because they have lost all of their original. They're entirely dependent on Western um, gear and and uh, munitions, artillery shells, uh, uh, rockets, and so forth. Um, and they're entirely dependent on the West for funding the regime. Uh, they need some $10 billion a month now to stay afloat, and they need it from the West because um, they're not – making anything substantial uh, in their own economy at the moment. Um, The International Atomic Energy Agency desperately wants to come and inspect the plant. Russia has tried to invite them to inspect the plant. However, there are political obstacles to the International uh, Energy Agency visiting the plant because officially they need permission from Ukraine, which – That's whose territory as it is, and the Kiev regime is not allowing them to visit the plant because, of course, there is the possibility that the International Atomic Energy Agency officials would get there and say, yeah, well, this is what's happening and make it much harder for the Kiev regime to put out uh, their ridiculous projection propaganda and have the Western media uh, treat it with any degree of seriousness at all.
0: Yeah. And another thing I wanted to uh, touch on, Mark, is the issue of sabotage. I mean, uh, here recently, uh, the Russian defense ministry blamed saboteurs for explosions that took place at a military warehouse in northern Korea, forcing the evacuation of more than 3000 people. And this took place at an ammunition storage facility near the village of Myskoye, uh, disrupting power supplies and uh, train services. And so what is going on uh, with this? Aspect of things And I mean Has this been An issue uh, Running through The conflict
4: Yeah okay So that was Northern Crimea Um, And uh, The Russian Ministry of Defense Officially Acknowledged That this was uh, An explosion uh, At a Train depot uh, that uh, military supplies were moving through, and it seems to have been a makeshift commercial drone dropping a grenade—a a relatively easy uh, form of, of sabotage. And the Kiev regime has indicated previously that you know they have infiltrated the area with um, teams, um, and just in the past week. Uh, the Russian government uh, apprehended a number of Azov agents behind the lines in Kherson uh, who were uh, planning and previously having operated in such incidents. So it should come as no surprise. I mean, there are thousands of Ukrainians that are constantly, uh, hundreds to thousands of Ukrainians that are entering Russian-controlled territory uh, in Ukraine uh, and then on, of course, possibly onto the Crimea um, every day. Uh, there's long – even CNN has reported on long lines of cars going from Ukraine into Russian-controlled uh, southern Ukraine. So that's no surprise. This has been an element uh, recently. Uh, I mean, throughout the entire conflict, there has been some sabotage going on, although it seems to have been a recent escalation, perhaps to compensate for the lack of the Kev regime being able to put together this much ballyhooed southern offensive counteroffensive in son which has never materialized. So they feel the need to demonstrate that they're doing something. So some pinprick strikes. There was also a um, an explosion um, at Sakhir. So- airfield in Crimea last week. They were more significant. Uh, The Russian government has simply said that ammunition exploded without saying what might have caused it. And it is also possible perhaps likely that Kiev regime sabotage was likely. More ominous, there has also been sabotage attacks in mainland Russia right across the Ukrainian border. This has continued, uh, you know, throughout the course of the conflict, minor such incidences um, that, you know, uh, are an annoyance and do create some problems, but certainly aren't changing the course of events. But in the last week also, a Russian nuclear power plant had its electrical lines uh, um, you know providing cooling for the plant you know uh, you know pumping of water um, uh, detonated the uh, transmission lines and that is once again that I would say definitely falls outside uh, the realm of an attack on a military target and falls into the grounds of potential nuclear terrorism. So they're not only doing it on their own soil, they're also doing it in Russia as well. And Russia has stepped up. Uh, the security uh, as a result, but um, I think it's pretty much impossible to rule it out entirely it 's something that will simply have to be endured at some level as long as the conflict goes on, and perhaps you know longer than that.
0: Yeah, and uh, we got about maybe three minutes uh, left here, Mark, and I wanted to touch on these uh, advances that Russia is making in uh, uh, the East. I mean, what are the the realities of that and what does it mean as far as how things stand right now?
4: Okay, so um, right now. Um, I mean, despite all the claims that have been coming from Western analysts, media and governments for the last few months that Russians are exhausted and Russians are out of missiles and Russians are out of tanks and Russians have low morale and Russia can't keep this up and their forces are exhausted, Russia uh, forces uh, and the allied East Ukrainian Donbass forces that are actually doing a lot of the fighting, perhaps the majority of the ground-to-ground combat, so this is primarily a conflict of Ukrainian. Against Ukrainians, uh, at, at least in so far when it comes to infantry battles, these forces, Russian and allied Donbas forces, continue to slowly, methodically grind through uh, extensive Kiev regime fortifications, steel and concrete that have been built up over the last eight years. It's something that takes times. The tactic that Russia is using is something well-suited to their military. They are simply softening an area, shaping the battlefield with extensive artillery uh, and a rocket bombardment for however long it takes to grind through those defenses and then only send troops in basically uh, uh, to occupy areas when, when nothing is moving. It is a brutal Uh, effective form of combat. And Russia is slowly grinding on their own timetable through this. They've recently taken Pesky, which was one of the most heavily defended areas in the South. But they are also now in uh, street combat across the entirety of the first of the last two Kiev regime defensive lines in East Ukraine at uh, uh, Seversk. Soledar, uh, and Bakhmut, as well as in the south around Pesky and Enveevka. And they have recently taken Pesky and several other small settlements as they slowly encircle all of these areas. They're also, even according to the Kiev regime, making gains in the north around Harukov, uh with the exact same uh, tactics. Um, it is, it's not flashy. It is the Russian version of a U.S. shock and awe. It's simply done with advanced artillery and rocket systems instead of heavy bombers uh, and fighter uh, airstrikes.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about why imperialists meddle in domestic U.S. elections. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Mark Fancher, human rights attorney and writer. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure and my honor.
0: Absolutely. And Mark, uh, here recently, there was a primary contest in Michigan between uh, Adam Holier, a black Michigan state senator, and Indian American millionaire businessman, Shri Tanadar. Now, what was noteworthy uh, about this uh, election is the fact that uh, somewhat late in the game, uh, uh, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, um, gave more than $4 million dollars to the Holier campaign. Now, of course, uh, we all know that uh, AIPAC is uh, one of the chief uh, Israel lobby institutions here in the U.S. And, you know, uh, on the surface, it doesn't appear that the Michigan primary has a lot to do with the politics of Israel or the Middle East more broadly. So I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what's happening here and what motivated uh, AIPAC to give uh, this generous donation.
3: Well, you know, actually they they didn't give the money. What they did is, on their own, and without consulting with uh, Mr. Hollier at all, they just began producing uh, favorable commercials about him hmm. and running them. Uh, and he 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 says that he was actually surprised uh, as surprised as anybody else that uh, they were running these nonstop commercials, glowing commercials about him. I mean, he was happy about it, but uh, had no knowledge that that's something that they were going to do. And uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, as is the case with uh, many who advocate for the state of Israel, uh, they don't miss a trick. And uh, they had their red flags went up when uh, some period earlier, uh, Sri Tanadar had co sponsored a resolution in the state legislature uh, that uh, called. Uh, the state of Israel to account uh, for many of its crimes against Palestinians, and there had been a passing reference to uh, another organization having labeled uh, Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, So that was enough for them. Uh, They were uh, concerned that uh, Mr. Tanadar would not be a quote-unquote friend of Israel, and therefore they were going to do what they could do to make sure that uh, he did not take that office.
1: And I think the other side of this is the fact that Hollier was, even though he he said he you know didn't know about it, but he was happy about this and he didn't repudiate, didn't you know reject this aid. As far I, I guess as we can tell, his campaign accepted the money. So I mean, what does this say about the susceptibility of uh, candidates in American uh, uh, politics? even in state races that most people outside of the localities where they are happening wouldn't even know anything about them i mean how subse- how susceptible they are to becoming quite literal agents of the zionist state of israel by accepting this large amount of money to prop up the continued mythology of you know the the legitimacy of the apartheid state of Israel,
3: well, I, I think most of them are not unwitting uh, agents and dupes. Uh, they they're quite uh, happy to play that role uh, because their primary concern many times is not uh, the you know justice or uh, concerns about the ravages of imperialism and Zionism and those kinds of things. They're trying to get elected to office uh, for whatever personal object, for whatever personal reasons they may have for wanting to hold the office. And, you know, if, if you read Hollier's uh, uh, thoughts, you know, the comments that he's made about the issue and other issues, then at least from my perspective, he is at, at least, and giving him the benefit of the doubt, quite naive, uh, but certainly uninformed. And uh I'm not so sure that if he had access to more information, uh he would be willing to change his outlook or his perspective uh on, on these and other issues. So uh, you know, just as a as a group, uh politicians are a loathsome species, uh and I don't know that we should at any time look to them as uh you know, freedom fighters or anything else because in fact, even though Tanadar ended up winning uh this this election uh, he had walked back uh, his support for the very progressive resolution that he had co-sponsored. Uh, I mean, he essentially said, I was just playing. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I did it when I was emotional about what was going on over there. And, and uh, you know, I, I did it, but you can count on me to be a friend of Israel. So uh, as a group, elected officials are not people that um, I think we should have high expectations for.
0: Definitely. And I appreciate you uh, explicating the nature of uh, Apex's support for uh, Holier there, uh, uh, Mark. And yeah, I mean, the whole thing with uh, Tanadar walking back, as you say, what was like a really good uh, piece that, um, you know, detailed a lot of the ongoing crimes of the Israeli apartheid state and then came back and said, well, basically, I was in my feelings. And so he folded like laundry. And you published a piece about this, Mark, uh, for a hood communist entitled imperialist meddling in Michigan elections show our strength. And you make the point that, you know, uh, uh, really what motivates AIPAC to uh, do things like this, it's really a kind of uh, a fear and a, and a desire to really try to break up uh, a solidarity movements uh, with uh, the Palestinian, uh, excuse me, with the Palestinian people. And I think that speaks to kind of a broader trend that we see throughout politics in the U.S. where there try to be there's attempts to uh, uh, create these wedges between different oppressed people, so that they they will not have that solidarity and will not organize amongst themselves, you know, against the people who are actually uh, the authors of their problems. You know what I mean? And so it's it's kind of a, a deeper thing that it seems like we're uh, discussing here in terms of it. And you also note, and I think this is important in the piece about how uh, Israel itself, as an entity, is an uh, appendage to U.S. imperialism. You know what I mean? And sort of. The very character of it in that way indelibly colors how they operate. But how do you see um, this uh, uh, issue of trying to break up a solidarity amongst the press people uh, playing into politics? Because it seems to me that if we look at this happening, then that shows a real concern. Right. And as such, perhaps should, uh, (laughs) you know, compel us to rededicate ourselves to actually strengthen this bond that uh, these elements are trying to break.
3: Oh, absolutely. Imperialism is running scared all the time. Uh, and they, imperialists recognize better than the broad masses of people uh, the strength and the, the, the potency, the power uh, that comes from global solidarity among oppressed people. And uh, they are on high alert uh, to ensure that that never comes about. Uh, and uh, to the extent that they can create confusion, uh, division, ignorance, uh, then they're on it. Uh, they are doing everything that they can to make sure that uh, people don't know uh, that, uh, for in many cases, uh, the oppression, the misery uh, that they're experiencing is all caused by the same forces, and that if all of the, those who are suffering were to come together and to focus their efforts, then they could wipe out uh, imperialism far more easily than I think most of us realize. And uh, we see it playing out. We've seen it play out historically, and uh, you know, in the uh, the piece that I wrote, I I talk about the fact that uh, the Grenadian government, uh, under the leadership of Maurice Bishop, uh, you know, the New Jewel Movement, uh, came across uh, a memo that had been written to the State Department, which went into which discussed this issue in great detail. And uh, whoever the author was expressed real concerns that uh, the Grenadian Revolution was populated by people who were English-speaking and who, because of their proximity to the United States, uh, presented a real danger in that they would be able to speak directly to uh, English-speaking people in the United States. And what made them even more dangerous is the fact that they were black. And that they would have a natural affinity, and people, black people in the United States would feel an affinity for them and look to them as a model. Uh, so, you know, th- this whole emergence, back especially during the late 1970s and 1980s, of uh, revolutionary fervor, uh, you saw it happening under uh, Michael Manley in Jamaica. Uh, you saw the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Uh, certainly Cuba had been a mainstay of revolutionary movement in that region. And then you had Grenada. Uh, That was very dangerous, and the Reagan administration used to refer to that Caribbean basin as, quote-unquote, our backyard, and they were not going to permit revolution uh, to continue to flourish in our backyard, where it might ignite uh, similar types of movements and and responses among oppressed people in the United States itself. Uh, So when we see the connections and the potential connections uh, then we can, on the one hand, become alarmed uh, that they would go to such great lengths to break up solidarity, but at the same time inspired uh, to know that uh, solidarity is within our grasp, and we have the potential to do great, great, uh, great things uh, as people who are struggling for liberation.
1: Yeah that's definitely a fact and I think that the way uh groups like APAC are operating to literally meddle in the elections uh at the state level in this country kind of reflect the typical imperialist playbook in uh trying to keep that solidarity from happening because there is an aspect of the kind of support that a Holier had outside of this money from uh APAC he also got the backing from unions and uh you know county executives and multi faith faith leaders and there's seemingly you know a an aspect of solidarity that could be used for good if Hollier had the right politics but uh, just like their imperialist uh forefathers or uh, uh, you know leaders you know apac and uh, the zionists are making sure that that solidarity really does not coalesce into something that is good for the people, and certainly not for the people of of Palestine. Mark.
3: Yeah, and I, I think we, as as genuine as people who are genuinely concerned about liberation, uh, need to make sure that when they do these kinds of things, that they're engaged in uh, fools' errands, uh, that they're on wild goose chases, and that the people actual politics are not conducted within the framework of the electoral system, uh, that we are reaching out on a grassroots level, people to people, and and working together to deal with these things. One of the most inspiring things that I saw uh, was that uh, when the flames went up uh, in response to the initial police killings uh, out in in Missouri, uh, there were young activists who were texting back and forth with kids in Palestine about and comparing notes about tactics and methods for dealing with tear gas. Uh, when we have these actual person-to-person uh, contacts and communications among people, we're working on projects that transcend uh, national borders. You know, if, if our poor communities are actually able to get uh, heating oil uh, from Venezuela, if our kids are actually able to, on a regular basis, go to medical school in Cuba, if we are working with uh, countries in Africa to try and ensure that they're liberated and strong so that we can provide for our needs directly, uh, you know, people to people, uh, then it renders the electoral process and the system which they've set up to ensure that we never get anywhere essentially superfluous and meaningless. Uh, We don't want to put our stock in trying to elect the right people because even if we elect the right people, the system is designed to ensure that they never do anything uh, that's meaningful. And the system certainly doesn't design itself uh, so that it lends uh, itself to self-destructing because of the revolutionary commitment of people who are elected into it. Uh, so I think that we really need to focus on that uh, much more than we have.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please, stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get us up here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash Radio click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B A.M. Necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world, and however you do it, we want to hear from you.
0: We most certainly do. We most certainly do when the At the top of the hour today, it is the 135th birthday of Jamaican-born Pan-African leader Marcus Mosiah Garvey, who organized and led the United Negro Improvement Association, the largest mass movement of black people this country has seen, and someone who inspired countless movements, organizations, and people in the time following his death. Happy birthday Marcus Garvey. Be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Richard Wolf, economist and professor at the New School University and author of the book The Sickness is the System: When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Dr. Wolf, thanks so much for joining us.
5: My pleasure. Thanks, and I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, the pleasure is all ours, Dr. Wolf, and U.S. President Joe Biden has signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law, which, among other things, sets a 15 percent minimum corporate tax rate. Now, this is a four hundred and thirty seven billion dollar package, which, of course, is you know, well short of the one point seventy five trillion that was supposed to go into the Build Back Better plan. Be that as it may, uh, uh, this law will include a three hundred and sixty nine billion dollar investment in climate and energy policies, sixty four billion dollars to um, extend an Affordable Care Act policy to reduce the cost of health insurance, uh, the fifteen percent corporate minimum tax, as I mentioned, and all these sorts of things. Now, uh, the economy, of course, has been. <laughs> This feels like an incredible understatement. I mean, a serious issue uh, for some time, certainly before the pandemic. But, you know, it was a situation that was worsened by uh, the impacts of the Corona virus pandemic and the mismanagement of that by both Republican and Democratic leadership here in the United States. But, uh, Dr. Wolf, I'm just sort of generally curious, your top line thoughts of this Inflation Reduction Act, what do you think it will accomplish? Do you believe that there's any chance it will actually impact the issue of inflation here in the U.S. And just how are you seeing it?
5: Well, I, I don't mean to be a downer. I, I I don't want to depress folks, but I know that you're a program that values being honest and being pretty straightforward. So I'm going to ride on your your good reputation and try to tell it bluntly, but tell it honestly. This bill is mostly smoke and mirrors. It will not cut inflation anytime soon. Uh, There's nothing in it that would make that happen uh, in a short period of time. Uh, If we then go and look at a longer period of time, then this bill is only one of the many different factors that are gonna come into play So my guess is it is a kind thing for me to say that this bill is way too little and way too late uh, to make any basic difference. And you can kind of see it in the history. When it was first put forward by some of the most excited comments from President Biden on down, we were told of actually three, even three and a half, trillion dollars that would be spent over the next 10 years to make a really appropriate large uh, response to the very large problems that the United States as an economy and a society has. The fact that it ended up $700 million, a billion dollars, give or take, means that the original Promises and suggestions, both of candidate Biden and then President Biden, have been cut down by 80%. That's not a little bit. That's a great deal of what was promised, and by the way, presented as the kind of big response that the severity of our problems require. Well, the problems didn't get any lighter over the last. uh, year of negotiations and bargaining. The bill got 80 percent smaller, uh, but the problems didn't go away. And so I think what we're going to see is lots of a uh, Democratic Party boasting that they got a bill passed, by the way, by one vote. Kamala Harris, as vice president, had to cast a deciding vote in the Senate. So they, they squeaked through a bill. They got Uh, the recalcitrant Democrats uh, to go along by giving away the farm. uh, And just to give you an example, slipped into this bill is a permission and support for the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas, to go on for years into the future. Even though we know that the climate damage they do, the the droughts we have, the fires we have, uh, the extreme climate disasters we have—they got that into that bill uh, to get even the little bit that the president got through. He had to give away uh, things. I'll give you another couple of examples: the fifteen percent minimum. Well, first of all, that only applies to companies whose profits are over a billion dollars. Well, that's the vast majority of American uh, businesses make profits less than a billion dollars. They're not required to pay a minimum tax at all. But even if you look at those who have a billion dollars or more, the minimum tax can only apply, if I've understood the law correctly, um, if they indeed show profits of that amount of money. All that these large companies now have to do is go to their accountants and figure out ways, and they've done this many times before, to evade these taxes one way or another, by having the profits show up in another part of the world, uh, to show up in a different year, uh, maybe two or three years from now, hoping that a Republican administration will come in and undo whatever it is that the bill now says. I mean, the strategies are endless. Um, Nothing basic in this system has changed. So we should have no reason to believe that this 80% reduced bill uh, with its particulars is going to do any better job in the years ahead to change the way this economy works uh, than the ones in the past. I mean, we, we keep having this same movie that we're watching. A lot of hoopla, a bill gets passed all kinds of grandiose promises are thrown around, photo ops in the newspaper, and then we all know where it ends up. I think a much more honest evaluation of where we stand comes if we look, for example, at the fact that the most recent report on homelessness in New York City indicates that it's 80,000, the official number Many people believe it's much larger than that. But even at 80,000, it's the highest homelessness rate the city of New York has ever seen in its history. I mean, what in the world is going on? We have an inflation running at nine, eight and a half, nine percent. That's wiping out all the gains that might have been made by the minority of people who had their wages go up over the last couple of years. All that's wiped out because the prices are going up much faster. And that means that the redistribution of wealth from the bottom and the middle to the top is actually accelerating, given this kind of inflation. Those are the realities of the economy today that really matter. And none of that is being, in any basic way, changed by this bill.
1: But Professor Wolf, Joe Biden said that with this law, the American people won and the special interests lost. And I guess maybe he's talking about the sixty four billion dollars in the bill that's supposed to extend the policy under the Affordable Care Act to reduce health insurance costs. I, I suppose. But, but what else could he be talking about, about the American people winning and surely this idea that the special interests lost when really they were given pretty much what they've been asking for, particularly the fossil fuel industry, in more licenses to uh, speculate and dig for more oil on uh, pre- formerly protected land. I mean, who... I. Who is he trying to fool? Well, I know who he's trying to fool, but he can't really believe the words that, he, that are coming out of his mouth, Professor Wolf.
5: No, and I, I mean, I wish I didn't have to say that. I, I don't take any pleasure or satisfaction at all, but it, it, it's just public relations. They're having that president get up there and say this kind of stuff. It's kind of embarrassing if you're a decent journalist if you're a decent commentator, you know very well that everything that that might have been done wasn't done. I mean, either we have a public health system that works properly or we don't. Every other advanced industrial country and many that are not advanced industrial countries have now switched over to national health services, where they have the government or a partnership between the government and some private enterprise manage insured healthcare so that every citizen knows that just like you have the right to go to public school as a child and just as you have the right uh, to enjoy the public parks in your community you are going to now have the right to get medical care when an illness or an injury strikes you uh, or your mother or your cousin or your neighbor, that these are things a civilized society provides for its people. And the United States is way behind other countries in not providing that now that we have a democratic party that said in the election that it would look seriously into what's called a public option or sometimes called single-payer health system you know the kind they have in canada or the kind they have in literally every european country but we didn't get that whatever the serious look into it might have meant seems to have lasted uh, five or six seconds And then they went on to something else, which is not at all a comprehensive health care system. It put a little money into Obamacare, but Obamacare was a stopgap that had to be apologized for, something that was better than nothing, but way short of what other countries do and what the United States does. We face the following reality, which a Democratic president and a Democratic Party dominating both houses of the United States Congress were in a position together to get done. But they didn't do it. We don't have comprehensive health care insurance, and this bill does nothing to get us there. And when you look at the fine print, all that the bill does is say that the Medicare system is going to have uh, a way to begin to bargain with private enterprise pharmaceutical companies uh, about the price of drugs. We don't know how that bargaining is going to go. We don't know how long it will take. We don't even know whether it'll be included in the coverage of Medicaid as well as Medicare. And, And for poor people on Medicaid, that's no minor matter how this is going to be handled. So what you've done is this old, limp way of the Democrats keep telling us it's better than nothing, but you know, we didn't elect people into the Democratic-controlled government so that they could be better than nothing. We wanted them to solve problems, and this bill does change nothing fundamental about this society. And the problems we have are no longer the kind that you can fix with this or that little bit over here, over there. No, we have basic problems. If we don't address that, if we don't even admit that we have them, then we're not going to be able to make any kind of progress. We're going to have lots of public relations events like this one, this big signing, and these bombastic comments. You know, if there had been anything like the people win and the pharmaceutical special interest lose, you would have seen collapses of the value of their shares on the stock market. Nothing like that happened. Not at all. They're laughing all the way to the bank. Their representatives, this time in the Democratic Party, next time it'll be in the Republican Party, their representatives have kept their promise. Nothing fundamental is changing. And as long as that's the commitment of these po- two political parties, we are going to be watching one photo op like this one after another.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I suppose it's entirely appropriate that this sort of thing comes from a president who who literally said that nothing will fundamentally change. And, you know, right. you're, you're he, so... He yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, and and as I always say, that that's one promise that Biden actually kept. And so it's it, it, it's it, it, I think it says a lot about conditions in this country in a number of ways. I mean, that number of 80,000 people in uh, uh, 80,000 homeless people in uh, New York City is insane. I mean, I looked up just out of curiosity when you said that I looked up the um, uh, population of uh, of my hometown and it's a little over 50,000. And so there's like more homeless people just in New York City than there are in some entire cities and towns across this country. And, you know, when when we talk about all of this, uh, when we talk about these uh, dog and pony shows in this political theater that uh, the Democrats uh, love to get into, and that seems to be I mean, number one, what they're good at. They're sort of good at putting on these productions. They don't seem to be uh, quite that talented at actually accomplishing things, certainly not for a, a sort of the rank and file person in this country. It, it, it's wild to me because I feel like it's part of sort of digging their own grave as an institution because they keep uh, uh, engaging in what you're describing, I think correctly, as smoke and mirrors, Dr. Wolf, that does not benefit uh, uh, poor and working people in this country. And it's almost as if they don't, don't expect any kind of political consequence for that. But, you know, as time moves on here, I think they may find that that may not quite be the case. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lufman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 02521 1320. That's 2 -2 02521 1320. Myself and Jackie Lupman continue to be joined by Dr. Richard Wolf. And Dr. Wolf, uh, we started off sort of talking about the uh, uh, signing of the Inflation Reduction Act and how it doesn't seem poised to actually impact reduction, meaning that uh, we don't seem to be in a position to see any real change uh, in the economy in the United States anytime soon, a change that is so desperately needed. And, and I feel like a part of how um, those in leadership in this country, these guardians of the capitalist system, a big part of how they're able to sort of get a lot of this over on the public, I think, is a lack of fundamental knowledge about how certain aspects of the economy worked. Like, for instance, this whole uh, issue about uh, markets and how, you know, we hear so often about, you know, market solutions and market mechanisms. And it's framed to us in this way to basically be a kind of answer to, to anything that ails us economically. And you recently published a piece about this entitled The Truth About Markets, Pillars of Capitalist ideology. And so I was hoping you could break down, you know, just what this means, Dr. Wolf, and how you see it factoring into this inflation issue.
5: Yeah, well, the basic argument goes something like this. Capitalism is a system that focuses and rewards and puts the emphasis on making money. Uh, Human beings are divided into two groups. One of them is called an employer And the other one is called an employee. We all know how that works. And we also know that the system is rigged, set up to to favor the employer. Basically, every employer looks upon the mass of people, employees, as opportunities to make a profit. That's how they talk about it. And here's what that means. If you get paid a wage... Whether it's 15 bucks an hour or five or 50, that you know, even if you've never taken a course in economics, you know something. And I'm now going to tell you what you know. You know that that employer would never pay you whatever he or she gives you per hour unless they got more out of you in that hour than it cost them to get you to come and be there. In other words, your labor adds to whatever it is they produce and sell more than whatever each hour, more than what they pay you. I mean, you have to face that. I know many employees don't like to face that because it means, yeah, you're being ripped off, not because someone is is clever, but because that's how the system is organized. You have to work. You have to sell your ability to do work. And the employer has a simple decision. Sure, I'll hire you. Yes, and I will give you, let's say, $25 an hour. And you know why? Because in every hour that I've got you working here, you're adding to what I have to sell more than $25 worth. And suppose what you help me produce is an extra $30 or $40, let's say, of stuff to sell. I paid you $25, but your labor was worth $40 to me when I came to sell what you helped to produce. That difference is the profit. That's what capitalism is all about. That system is the one we live under, and it's the way... We all work. That profit is what allows the employers to become powerful and wealthy. Let's be real clear, friends and neighbors. Less than 1% of the American people are employers. The other 99% are either employees or members of families of employees. It's the 1% versus the 99%. And the 1%, the employers, are the ones who call the shots. They're the ones who decide what gets produced, how it gets produced, where it gets produced, and what's done with the profits they get the rest of us as employees to produce for them. Now, they can't put that out there in the blunt terms I've just used. If people really understood how this system works, what its foundation is, I don't think they'd tolerate it for another week. So it has always been necessary to rebrand this system, to redefine it, to use the media, the politicians, the schools, the academics, to describe it in completely different ways terms and the most favorite term the market system oh in other words the reason i'm poor is the market the reason i'm never as rich as elon musk well that's the market you see It's something impersonal. It's something bigger than any of us. It surrounds us. It's enormous. And it has rules, you see, and we're all just following the rules. So don't get mad at the employer for ripping you off. That's not what's going on. The employer is just following, get ready now, the rules of the market. And so we should all bow down. If you want to understand the market, then the the image you ought to have in your mind is the role of the Roman Catholic Church in medieval Europe. Whatever happened in Europe at that time, however oppressed the mass of people were, and they were called serfs in those days, and they were dominated by lords. Lords and serfs were the equivalent then of employers and employees now. And whatever happened in that society, every time the Lord ripped off his serfs, you know what was explained to people? This has nothing to do with the Lord. He's not abusing you. This is all about God's plan for the world. And you have nothing. You shake your fist at God. That's a waste of your time. You're not gonna change that. That's the way the world works. We don't have, we don't use that system anymore. We don't use that language. God has gone into the church, but we have a new God to replace the one that's in the church, and that one is called the market. Now the easiest way to understand how the market is purely a game, a language game, to, to confuse you, is to understand how a market works. And here I can be very simple. Markets are there to distribute things that, for whatever reason, are in short supply. So, for example, take a simple, a simple case. Uh, you are in charge of six children, and you're going to the park. And in the park, you encounter a fellow selling ice cream and the fellow-selling ice cream uh, only has three ice creams left, you've got six children. You've given each child some money for that day in the park, and now the six children, each with money in their pocket, confront the ice cream seller who's only got three left. You know what happens? One of the children, maybe a clever one, says to the guy, oh, I see you only have three. I'll let you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer you more money for that ice cream than you normally charge. And I'm hoping that there, were, in that way, I will get whatever is scarce, in this case, ice cream cones. That means another child has to say, oh, my God, I'm not going to get my ice cream. I'll offer even more than the first kid did. In other words, to use the language of the market, Whenever something is scarce, for whatever reason, a bidding process starts in which everybody who wants to get whatever is scarce offers more money. And of course, as the price goes up as a result of this bidding, the poorest among us can't afford it anymore. So we don't play the game anymore. We drop away. We don't have the money to offer more than everybody else. Only the richest amongst us can. So when prices go up, like, you know, today, because things are scarce, like, you know, today, what we see is a rising price that makes the poorest among us unable to afford it. The market, in short, distributes whatever is scarce to the highest bidder. It distributes it to the richest people. Now, let me ask all of you listening, what morality, what religion, what ethics in the world would allow it to be said that it is decent when there's a shortage, to give whatever's in short supply to the richest people amongst us. You know what that means? It means that if there's a shortage of milk, rich people can buy it to feed it to their pets, but people with a bunch of children in the house won't be able, because they're poor, to afford it to nourish their kids. Really? That's what a market is? Yeah. And when you say, let the market decide, it's simply a sneaky way of saying, let this system favor the richest amongst us. Because that's in fact how it works. That's in fact how markets work. And that's why we talk about markets rather than confronting what's really going on, which is a system organized by, for,
0: the rich. Definitely. We have a caller on the line here. Dave, tell us what's on your mind.
6: Hey, uh, Richard. I just wanted to thank you for recording that lecture capitalism hits the fan over 10 years ago because <laughs> watching that on DVD was really a life-changing and consciousness-raising moment. But I've noticed over the last 10 years that you often have a really tight focus on um, really um, sharing a message of with the co-ops and I was hoping for you to kind of contextualize that and um, maybe talk on on how you do that if that's like a tactical approach. Um, I know you you, you know you, you limit your focus on that um, for people to go and learn more. but I was just wondering like where does that fit in your broader philosophy and theory of a revolution in getting to socialism or communism um, particularly do you view worker co-ops as sort of some sort of transitionary? some sort of like transitory phase towards a broader collective ownership of the means of production um, and abolishing the wage system um, or, or whatever. So I was just hoping if you could just pull back to a little bit of a bigger picture than what you usually do um, in your monthly updates. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Dave. Sure. I appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next up, we have Keith. Tell us what's on your mind.
3: Yes, uh, Professor Wolf. glad you're back on the show. I've seen one of your presentations in D.C. some years ago, and it's fantastic. I continue to follow you. Just wondering, to what degree is endless war uh, in the U.S. as a hegemon and sanctioning, pirateering, taking people's assets, killing people, General Suleimani? how much of this is driven by the need to uh, have a war to support one of the few industries that make things, uh, th- that is to say, the defense contractors. Is it linked to that? Is it that law that the defense contractors have to be paid or else the economy would be, you know, poorly, uh, it would be, you know, wouldn't be well off? And then finally, um, how long can uh, the U.S. keep up endless war if that is linked to its economy, if at all? Thanks, sir.
0: Well, thank you, Keith. Appreciate you calling and Hope to hear from you again soon. So, uh, Dr. Wolf, a question about the role of worker co-ops in your theory of change and uh, how does imperialism play into the economy?
5: All right. Great questions. And and thank you both, uh, Dave and Keith, for for sending them in. Um, Let me start with co-ops. It comes right from what I said a minute ago. The problems of the United States are very profound. The inequality here is off the chart and getting worse as we speak. Uh, The level of debt carried by the government, by corporations, and by households is likewise off the chart. Those, and I could go on, but those two alone, inequality and debt, show you that we are in uncharted territory, except we know that it's a bad place to be. Inequality produces social conflict, divisions, bitterness, envy. And man, we see that around us every day in a hundred different ways. And indebtedness makes us anxious, worried about the future. Lord, help us. If we lose our job, how will we keep our mortgaged home, our car payments uh, giving us a car, our student loans so we can get an education, the credit card debt that keeps looming over us like a bad dream. I mean, if you want to deal with basic problems like this, having another law which changes the percentage of maybe a tax that a company will pay, that's like putting Band-Aid on a cancer. You've got cancer, Jack. That doesn't get you Band-Aids. you got to do more than that. And here's the more, and here's why I talk about co-ops. The reason our economic system works only for the people at the top who are wealthier than they've ever been, who are more powerful than they've ever been, the reason it works for them is because of the way we've organized our economy at the most basic level. Let me describe to you very quickly how we've organized every factory virtually, every office, Uh, and in almost every store. A tiny group of people, the owner of the store or the board of directors if it's a corporation, they make all the decisions. This is a tiny group of people, one, two, four, ten. with a board of directors of a big company, maybe 15. That's all, that's all. They can have thousands of employees, but a tiny number of people make all the decisions. They are like kings in medieval times. They get together in very fancy rooms and they decide what the enterprise or the workplace is going to produce, what technology it's going to use, where it's going to do it. And, you know, when it comes to deciding who gets the profit, the wealth that they produce, guess what? They give it to themselves, which is why they become the rich and powerful in our society. If you don't want that to continue, if you understand that the root of our problems is the way we have organized the production of the goods and services we depend on, then you got to change that. And here's what I propose. Bring democracy to the workplace. It should have been there from the beginning. We never brought democracy in the workplace. We don't vote for who the CEO is. The people who vote for him don't work in the place. And the people who work in the place don't get to vote for him. That's not democracy. That's the opposite. I make a joke to my students. We didn't get rid of kings 500 years ago. They just moved and changed their name. They went inside the workplace and changed their name from king to CEO. It's the same game. They hire and fire us when they feel like it. When it's profitable for them to do so, they do. And then when it isn't, they give us the famous pink slip. I prefer, as the only solution adequate to deal with the problems we now have, that we change From the undemocratic system of a tiny number of people deciding what happens in every factory, office, and store, to letting the people who work there, the vast majority of people in every workplace, are the employees, not the employer. They should democratically run those enterprises. And you know what? If we democratically rammed the enterprises, we wouldn't give one guy, you know, like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, we wouldn't give them hundreds of billions of dollars more than most countries have, while the rest of us have a hard time paying for the week's groceries. We wouldn't behave like that. You know why? Because it is gross and ugly and unfair. But if you want to get rid of a society that celebrates what's gross and ugly and unfair, you've got to make the kind of basic changes which the world of worker co-ops can give you in an instant an idea of how it would look and how it would work. And people have been thinking about worker co-ops for thousands of years. It's not a new idea, but it's an idea whose time has come. On the other question, yeah, we have a military-industrial complex. President Eisenhower, many, many years ago, warned us about what that complex would do. All of these industries spread across the United States, selling everything they produce to the United States Defense Department. The government is the sole buyer. They are dependent on the government. They are more dependent on the government than any welfare family ever was. They live and die selling guns, planes, tanks, missiles, bullets, uniforms, you name it, to the United States government. And they're so big and they have grown so fat because the United States was in charge of the world economy after World War II. It was the dominant economic force. And one of the ways it kept that position was by being sure it was the dominant military force. And how did they do that? By literally mobilizing an enormous part of the economy to produce the most powerful military in the world, which it still is. But now it's the old joke. If you make something that big, well, then you become dependent on it. We can't let the military collapse, we can't stop buying guns, bullets, missiles, tanks, aircraft carriers, and all the rest, because then our economy would take a fantastic blow. So they have us, these military producers. The government has to buy, A, if it's going to keep its empire around the world, and B, if it's going to avoid an economic collapse at home. Well, you could just keep accumulating the military, not actually going to war, just produce it, store it for a while, then come up with a more advanced version of that weapon or that plane or that gun that allows you to junk what you've been storing or maybe sell it to some third world country uh, that has no weapons of its own and buy a whole new, more developed, more modern set. And we've been doing that for 75 years. We never dismantled the military after World War II. It's bigger than it ever was or nearly so, uh, certainly possesses more equipment, costing us way more money uh, year after year. It's an endless part. But I wouldn't want to go so far uh, as your last point. We don't maintain the military only because if we didn't, it would hurt our economy. That's certainly part of it. And we don't maintain the military simply because it makes us a powerful threat. We also maintain the military because periodically we need to use it. Why? Because, like every other empire in the history of the world, the United States Empire will decline. Roman Empire rose and fell. British Empire rose and fell. Roman Empire. Greek Empire. Why would you think the United States is any different? The great fear of the people who run this country is that their decline has now begun. And that scares them. And they see the evidence, the biggest piece of evidence, and there is no shortcut around this unless you prefer to live in fantasy. The biggest evidence is that for the first time, In a century, the United States has a real economic competitor. And that's the People's Republic of China. And therefore, the United States is no longer alone. There is another superpower. Russia, the Soviet Union, never was. Let me give you a simple statistic, which if you keep it in your mind, you'll never go wrong. There's a statistic called the GDP, Gross Domestic Product, is what it stands for. It simply measures the output of goods and services each year that a country produces. So it's a simple way of having an understanding of what the size of an economy is. In the most recent year, last year, the GDP of Russia was $1.5 trillion. The GDP last year of the United States was $21 trillion. Do you understand? There is no comparison to the size and power and wealth of the United States relative to Russia. The war in the Ukraine, which is basically now a U.S. versus Russia activity, unfortunately destroying that little country of of Ukraine, that's a war between David and Goliath, and you can figure out who's playing which role. By contrast, the People's Republic of China's GDP is $15 trillion. That should help everyone understand the American empire has its peak behind it. The Chinese Empire is emerging in the 21st century the way the United States arose and replaced the British Empire in the 19th and 20th century. Maintaining an immense military establishment is the way that a desperate capitalist class in the United States getting more and more upset by the fact that its empire isn't what it was, is trying to browbeat the rest of the world into giving it at least a bit more time. There is a very urgent need for Americans to face up to this rather than live in the delusion that we can do as a nation what we did 20 years ago. 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 80 years ago, that period of history is now over, and we're in a new one. And if we don't come to terms with what that means, then the risk of one of these crazy wars, like the one in Ukraine, will spin out of control, and instead of coming to an accommodation with the rest of the world, we'll try to hold on. And if history is a teacher of anything, it t- teaches that that effort to hold on by a dying dying empire never ends well.
0: Becky Lukman, your thoughts?
1: I mean, I I think, Doctor Wolf, that we're we're talking about all of the obvious. And my question is always, how do we reach people who are still very invested in this system? I mean, we have people, we know people in our families, you know, who we, uh, you know, fellowship in church with, who are very invested in this market, who think that, you know, when the market does good, we all do well, uh, that, you know, when, when America is quote unquote defended, that's a good thing for us, you know, we can know all of these things. But I think as organizers, that's the that's the question that I always ask. What do we do with this knowledge, with the people who really just, it seems to me they just don't want to see it?
5: Well, you know, of course you're right. I have the same, you know, in my family and my surroundings. Um, and here's what I have come to believe, all I can think of, uh, to respond to your your, your absolutely right uh, question to ask. But my response may surprise you. What we need to do is what, in fact, both of you are doing. What we, all of us, you, me, and, and the audience, we are talking it out. We are making it clearer. We are puzzling our way to account for all of these things in a way that doesn't show that we're invested in this system, that actually shows that the logical way to go is we should have changed this system long ago because it's long overdue. I know that that is a slow way to make change, but to tell you the truth, I think that's the only way. It takes a long time. Everybody has to have experiences in his or her life that make them realize that what a friend told them in church or school or at the family picnic that they didn't pay much attention attention to at the time turns out to be the wisdom that they now need They when they lose their job, when they... Uh, Uh, find themselves in a country at war and their house gets blown up uh, around them. Uh, Even small events can do that. Coming, you know, that joke that in my family is very popular, there's too much month at the end of the money. Uh, Those little moments, large and small, are learning moments. You may not even be aware of what you've learned or how it's going to change the way you look. You know, a great leader once said when confronted by his associates who complained like I just did, it goes so slowly, it's taking so long, why don't the people see what is oppressing them? He turned to them and he said, he's a very smart guy, he said, you know, for decades it looks like nothing's happening and then something happens and in a few weeks decades happen. I think that's the way it always goes. Um, People are surprised when it blows. But if you look closer to the explosion, whatever it is, it'll turn out that there were a thousand events over the preceding years, each of which taught some lessons to some people. And when you added it up, here comes that last event, that straw that broke the camel's back, that last event, which was one event too many. When you saw the explosion, for example, of Black Lives Matter out of the George Floyd uh, murder, that was among, it wasn't just that. Horrible as it is, what happened to George Floyd, anyone who pays attention knows that happens all the time. But you know, at a certain point, too many people have seen it, have heard about it, have been involved in it, and now, the last time it happens, it blows. My guess is, that's what we're going to see here in the United States. Nobody, not me, not anybody else, can predict exactly how and where and when. But that's what's coming, you In the words, I believe, of Abraham Lincoln, you can't fool all the people all the time. And eventually it catches up. And our job now is to tell it like we see it and never stop doing that.
0: Definitely. And you're so right when you talk about how, you know, we we can't really predict when there's going to be a moment of revolutionary crisis here in the United States. Uh, Folks have heard me said on uh, uh, the show before that we can't rely on spontaneous consciousness to sort of uh, mobilize itself all on its own. It has to be organized. So even though we can't predict when that moment will come, even though we can't control that, What we can control is what we're doing right here, right now. In this moment, we can build right now. We can organize right now. We can educate right now. And this is, I think, how we uh, uh, build the ship before the storm, if you will. That's how we have the proper vehicle to carry a struggle through once that inflection point comes, which I agree it inevitably will. And see, I think it's important to say this because I think a lot of times uh, there can be some uh, uh, confusion or or even uh, a discouragement that can set into people because they may feel in some visceral way that uh, uh, all these trends are sort of uh, converging and all these contradictions are sort of imploding all at once and it can be hard to know what to do. This is why we always say join an organization, be a part of a movement, become rooted in communities, because that kind of collective effort, that collective political struggle is the only way that we'll be able to deal with the consequences of that crisis when it inevitably comes. You know what I mean? And so to me, that really is uh, uh, the solution that we should be looking to. It's the same solution that we've been seeing uh, for literal centuries here. When we look at how revolutions have played out historically, you know, and so, you know, as ever, Jackie, there really is no replacement for that kind of uh, struggle, for that kind of movement building and organization strengthening. And uh, I think this is where our energy should really be directed, particularly in this coming period, as we continue to see the contradictions of this capitalism go unaddressed by its ruling class.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I mean I I gotta be honest, you know, I'm I'm not one of those people who is always patient with folks, you know, especially as these contradictions are uh, heightening, and they—they should, you know. We think, we say all the time, they should be evident to so many people, and so many folks are feeling the effects of this system collapsing in on itself. And and but I have to have that revolutionary patience with people that I'm organizing with, because I I do, you know, have those moments, Sean, where I'm like, how do you not, how do you just, how are you just not all down with socialism now that I've told you everything that that is really going on and how this system is really working against you and how it exists to exploit you? How do you not get this? Because, you know, as a person, I see that, yeah, the, the time is short. This empire is crumbling but as an organizer. I have to have that revolutionary patience and continue to hammer at the, the basics, do this organizing and have these conversations. And you know what? It'll pay off in the weirdest ways and ways that we don't expect, because, brother, anytime I could get my mother in law, my stepmother in law to admit that she agrees with the redistribution of wealth from a biblical standpoint, I mean, son, I, so the the process works. So we have to continue to follow this process of organizing in order to get people where we need them to be.
0: Absolutely, and what you're speaking to, Jackie, is the way that these politics and this movement building can really uh, develop us in a way that we otherwise might not have. This is what empowers us to have patience when we would have otherwise been impatient. This is what encourages us to have courage when we would have otherwise been afraid. This is what helps us have joy when we would have otherwise uh, been in despair, and this is that kind of transformational power that we often talk about. It's not this ethereal kumbaya thing that we're. Ta- I mean, we're talking about something that literally changes you, changes organizations, changes communities, and in that process, we can change society itself. Well, we want to thank Doctor Richard Wolf so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today. Here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.